We are continuing our story this week of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the Comeback Kids. And this is the story on the large scale of what happened after God punished his people for their unfaithfulness. And he brought in Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they conquered Jerusalem and conquered the people and, and sent them off into exile. And then what happened next? What happened next is what we're talking about now. They spent 70 years in exile in Babylon, but then God arranged for them to return and rebuild. And this overarching story of, of sin and consequence, and repentance, and restoration is told on a, a big national scale covering many generations things, but it's also told many times in the Bible on an individual scale. And it applies uh, to the nation of Israel, but it also applies to each one of our lives, because we too have sinned against God, and we suffer the consequences for our sins. But as our memory verse challenge that we did last week, not the one we just said, but the one from last week, it said this, it said, uh, it was talking about this, uh, restor this restoration of people. It says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that was a prophecy from uh, Jeremiah talking about this time of restoration and, um, and uh, God stands ready. He has promised that He will restore us. When we confess our sins to Him, He stands ready to forgive. And He will bring us back into a proper relationship with Him as His children. So, are you not in the place where you should be in your relationship with God today? Is there sin in your life that you need to bring to God today so that He can restore you? See, today can be your day. If you call on God today and pray to Him, He will listen to you, and you will find God when you seek Him with all your heart. So I challenge you to follow this great example of this story today. But in addition to that, larger narrative, the big, uh, big story that we've been talking about uh, from the Bible here, there's also a lot of the details in this story that we can also learn lessons from. And today, we are continuing to look at the detailed story from the book of Nehemiah. You remember last week, we uh, heard about the rebuilding of the walls and all the difficulties that they had with the rebuilding of the walls. And now, in chapter 7 and verse 1, it says this, it says, after the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were, were appointed. So, um, Nehemiah uh, knew, now that everything was, uh, was, was built and stuff, that he needs uh, uh, to establish staff and people to man the whole thing. Um, uh, and he knew that uh, when he had finished his big building project, and he had, as it says here, the walls were built, gates were in place, everything was done, he wasn't done. He wasn't done. Uh, he didn't say, 
Time to go back to being cupbearer to the king. I finished my, my wall project. It took me two months, and now it's time. Now I'm finished. Instead, he knew that he had more work to do. And the next thing was to appoint these people to man the gates. And it also says he appointed musicians and Levites. Now, musicians and Levites were not to man the gates. I mean, uh, they had roles in the temple courts was where he was putting these people. So um, why was it that uh, Nehemiah was now concerned? He's with his building project. Now he's also appointing people for the temple and to work at the temple. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to look a little bit more about uh, other people that he's appointing and what else he's doing here. It says in verse 2, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother, Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. So he's got two people here. First one, uh, Hanani, uh, who was the same brother, if you look back uh, to the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, this was the guy that came to Nehemiah and told him, hey, things are going badly in Jerusalem, and, it's, and kind of was the, the uh, impetus of this whole project, and got Nehemiah going. And apparently, he, after he talked to Nehemiah about the problems, he came back with him to Jerusalem and was working alongside of him, and now Nehemiah is appointing him to, um, to be in charge of the city. And, uh, and from the context, we can see uh, that... Uh, what these guys were doing as being in charge of the city is they were controlling access to the city. Now that they've got a wall and they've got gates, the whole thing is, is, uh, is a city that can be controlled. And so Hananiah and Hanani were the ones who were in charge of the gatekeepers and in charge of the gates and controlled when people could come and go um, so that the city could be safe but also be functional and, and it could, uh, could have commerce and things. And the Bible specifically mentions what qualified Hananiah to be a leader among the people of God. And it says, he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. So, do you want to be qualified to serve God and to be used by Him? Do you want to be used to accomplish something significant with your life? Well, here is the qualification to aim for. And it has two parts. The first part is be a person of integrity. A person of integrity is, uh, is just as committed to doing the right thing when there's not other people around watching. The person of integrity will do their best even if they know no one's going to notice. That's a person of integrity. And the other part of it is to learn to fear God. And we talked about this, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I talked about my favorite illustration of what it means to fear God. Um, I'll give it again, just a, a brief uh, summary of it here. We should have the kind of fear attitude toward God that surfers have toward the ocean, right? Because surfers recognize the power of the waves and the dangers uh, that, that, that are there, and they know that if you don't treat the ocean with respect and wisdom, you could be destroyed by it. 
But this does not cause them to flee far away from the shore and stay away from the ocean. Surfers love the ocean and they're drawn to it. They believe that the ocean is good and that when it's treated properly, that it is a really great thing. And that is how we should fear God. We should know that, uh, that He is dangerous, yes. He judges sin. And He makes demands on our lives that we had better meet. And He is powerful and mighty and deserving of our fear. But this should not cause us to flee from God because God is good. So one of the results of this appropriate fear of God that is that it makes you worthy to be a leader among the people of God and to be used by God to do significant things. So be like Hananiah, be a person of integrity who fears God more than most, and then God can use you too. Moving on in the story in verse 4. It says, uh, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. And if we read on in the, in the passage, we see that this registration was a preparation for recruiting people to move back into the city and bring its population back. Um, at this point, most of the people were living out in the smaller towns and things because that's where the farms were, and so they were working their farms out in the, in the uh, smaller areas. But Nehemiah wants there to be an urban center for the people too. He wants a city. And where does that desire come from to, to build up this urban center? It says in verse 5, "'My God put it into my heart.'" So Nehemiah is continuing to be guided by God in his leadership of the people of God, and he is, and he is uh, continuing to move forward in God's plans for his people. So now let's, let's take a minute and talk about this, uh, what we've seen so far. So Nehemiah came back to, his, to Jerusalem, and his first big project was to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city. But we've just seen that when he was done with that project, he just kept right on, right on going. He appointed people to man the gates. He appointed leaders over the gatekeepers. But we also saw he was concerned to make sure that the temple had sufficient staff. And now he's taking steps to make sure that the city has sufficient population. And we see shortly that he was also involved in helping Ezra to teach the Bible to the people. And this Bible teaching leads to a spiritual revival and a new spiritual vow from the nation to make a clean break with the sins that they had been committing in the past. And Nehemiah also got involved in the financial dealings of the people. Mike talked about that last week, how uh, during the, the project of building on the wall, people abandoned their regular jobs and for two months they were working on the wall. And that, uh, for those who were uh, you know, didn't have two months of savings built up, suddenly they don't have any income for two months. And so a lot of people were pushed into poverty by that project. But, um, but it's clear from the text that really the economic problems did not start with the work on the wall. Wealthier people were financially oppressing the poor, and Nehemiah got involved. 
and he made sure that he brought economic justice to the community. And he also got involved in making sure that businesses were not open on the Sabbath so that people could properly observe God's Sabbath and keep it holy. And all this went way beyond the building of the walls, which is what we usually associate with, uh, with that being Nehemiah's thing, right? But Nehemiah was God's faithful servant, and he was a great leader. And God was interested in a lot more than just the wall. And so was Nehemiah. Um, in fact, if we go back to what he told the king when he first asked permission to come uh, back to, uh, to Jerusalem, and he wanted to leave the king and come, here's what he said back in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. He said, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. He didn't simply ask permission to rebuild the walls. He asked permission to rebuild the city. And there is a lot more to rebuilding a city than just walls. It includes putting the right people in charge of the various leadership duties in the city. It includes fair and just economic system. It includes... uh, uh, staffing the temple. It includes passing laws to protect the Sabbath. It includes recruiting people to populate the city. To build a city is much more than just to build some physical structures. And God called Nehemiah and put it in his heart to do much more than just build walls. So what is the lesson there for you and me? Well, here it is. God wants to work in and through your whole life. God does not want to be limited to one part of your life. Normally, we we would be likely to think that what God's really concerned about is is spiritual things. He's concerned about me praying and reading the Bible and coming to church. But God's concern for your life goes way beyond that. It includes things like your economic <clears throat> dealings and your, your physical life and your, uh, the way that you live, and he's concerned about how you treat other people. That means that your work life, your job is also a part of God's concern for you. Your family life, all the rest of your life, God wants to work in and through your whole life, just like he wanted to restore the complete city of Jerusalem, not just one part of it, not just a physical structure. So how does God want to use you to extend His kingdom in this world? It could be in any area of your life. And it could be different than the way God worked through you in the past. Nehemiah was done with the one huge project that God called him to do, but God was not done with him. He had other things that he wanted to use Nehemiah to do, and God may have new things for you to do as well. So be a person of integrity who fears God more than most people do, and then look for the call of God in your life. Now, let's continue on in the story here. 
The, the rest of chapter 7, or almost all the rest of it, is a big long list of all these uh, people who returned from the exile. We're going to skip over that part um, and move right to the very end of uh, chapter 7. So I want to point out something about this slide real quick before we move on to kind of a side note here. Um, you notice that this is, the reference there is, this is chapter 7, verses 73b, and ver- chapter 8, verse 1. Right, so that's a little odd because um, the uh, chapter 7 ends right in the middle of the first sentence on this slide. It's right after uh, the word, uh, let's see, it's, it's right after the word towns. They had settled in their towns, then that's where the chapter ends and a new chapter begins. Now, it's not super unusual for a verse to end in the middle of a sentence, but it is a bit odd. Uh, there's a few places in the Bible where it's like this, where a whole chapter ends in the middle of a sentence. And I just want to take a moment to explain why this kind of thing happens. And the reason is because, of course, the original writers of the Bible did not put any chapter or verse marks in the Bible. They didn't have any punctuation in the Bible. Um, that came much later through people who were making their copies of the Bible decided to put in chapters and verses. In fact, the The chapter and verse divisions that we all use today were created by a guy named Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in around uh, the year 1227, so many centuries after the writing of the Bible. And he was not inspired by the Holy Spirit to create a perfect system. Uh, And at times, he put verse markers and even chapter divisions in kind of odd places, like the middle of a sentence. Um, And uh, so... While it's very enormously convenient for us to have a system that we all agree on, and this is how we can find specific spots in the Bible, this chapter and this verse, uh, don't forget that it's not really part of the text any more than the little headings that you see in your Bible, or like in my study Bible, I've got a little line across here and then notes at the bottom. Those verse numbers and chapter numbers, they're no more authoritative than the little notes and the, and the other things there. So... Because this is an odd spot in the Bible, I just wanted to mention that. So let's move on to what it actually says. It says, When the seventh month came and all the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the wall was completed, Uh, we have the dates in there, in the last month of the year, and it's now the seventh month of the year, so it's been about seven months later. So this is, uh, there's a time gap from the last section of the story until now. It's been a half a year, and the people are now gathering together um, for a special Bible teaching session, and they, uh, they come to hear Ezra reading from the Word of God. And specifically, what Ezra is going to teach them is called the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And that's a significant title for the book, because this is not just a historical document that they have from dating back in the the ancient days of their nation. This uh, was written by the founder of the nation. Yes, it was written by Moses, but this book of the law has its origin in God himself. This is the authoritative revelation of God to his people. And really, in order for us to to really appreciate the significance of this event, we need to remember a little historical situation here. Um, This scroll 
that Ezra has, the book of the law, this would have been a very rare item in those days. They didn't have books like we have today. Um, these kind of things, it's called a codex is the real name for this, and it hadn't been invented yet. They had scrolls. And scrolls were all handwritten, obviously, and um, they were really rare. People didn't have uh, copies of the Bible at home. They, uh, and we don't know for sure, but at this point, in the return from the exile and stuff, there could have been only a, a handful of copies of the Bible in existence. And, uh, and now Ezra, at this special event, has, is bringing out this book, this, this uh, book of the law of Moses that has been given to the people by God. And, uh, and, 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 his, and he unrolls the scroll, and he's getting ready to read it to the people. And this is a big deal. And so, verse 2, um, So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So, everyone gathers together for this. Men, women, and kids who are old enough to understand what's going on are all brought together. Uh, the Bible is for everyone to hear and understand. Verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And the people, all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So this is a pretty substantial uh, teaching session here. Uh, here at Clearwater, we usually keep our sermons to around 30 minutes or 35 minutes maybe. This guy preached for like four hours, but that's okay. We're not going to try to switch over to that, but uh, uh, maybe Ezra on normal days preached more like 30 minutes, but this was a special occasion, and so we have this... Uh, this long teaching session, and he's got a lot to cover here. Verse 4, Ezra the teacher of the law, or sorry, verse 5, uh, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So why did they have such reverence and ceremony? Because this scroll that Ezra was unrolling was no ordinary scroll. This was God's revelation to people of himself and his will for them. We don't know exactly what section Ezra was reading from the books of Moses here, but it's seems likely to me that he started with Genesis and the beginning, where he starts reading, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, this scroll that Ezra was reading is the foundation of a true understanding of what the world is, where it came from, who we are, who God is, how we relate to God. And these people recognized the importance of this moment. And as they were about to hear the revelation of God being read, they worshipped the God who had given them this book. 
Amen, amen, they said. Right, so that, uh, that me- amen means something like truly or truth. So they were attesting to their belief that what God says is true. We might wonder or argue about whether what we hear on Fox or CNN is true or not, but what is written in the Bible is true. What God says is the truth. Amen, amen. Now, in chapter 8, verse 7 here, it says, The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, and Haman, and Peliah. And any of you who, uh, I don't know if we've got any uh, pregnant couples out here who are getting ready to have a baby, but here's a great list of uh, possible baby names for you. Um, any one of those would be great. So those are the Levites. They, it says they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So these guys were Levites. That means that they were guys who had studied the Word. They had had access to these scrolls previously, and they knew what they said, and they were uh, educated in the, in the book of the law, and they were um, then able to teach others. Um, <clears throat> it's not clear exactly how that worked. It doesn't uh, give us the details of how, uh, how they were doing this teaching, but... Um, you know, verse 3 makes it sound like Ezra just stood up and read for several hours, but here a little more detail is given that it pro- that's probably not what happened. He read a section, and then these 13 Levites um, went out among the people, which, uh, remember, this was the whole nation was gathered together, so there's thousands of people there. So they got into smaller groups of still pretty big groups and, uh, and gave more instruction to make sure that the people understood what was, what was being taught. And that was important because it was essential that all of the people would understand what was being read. Because God's plan is not that the leaders read the Bible and then they just tell everybody else what to do. God's plan is that the people themselves are able to understand the Bible. And yes, in this case, it is being explained to them by the clergy, but the role of the clergy clergy is simply to faithfully explain the true meaning of the text, which is being read. And all of the men and women, and even the older kids, are capable of understanding the text. The role of the teachers is simply to help them understand. It's not to teach their own ideas about God or their own theories about how people should live. And of course, that's what Pastor Mike and I and Pastor Brian and anyone else who preaches here at Clearwater Church, that is what we are trying to do. We don't preach our own ideas. Our intention is to read the Word of God and help everyone to understand what it says. The source of the message is from God and not from us. Verse 9, it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, 
and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. It doesn't really explain exactly what they were weeping about here, but we can judge from the context uh, later on, the next couple of chapters, where uh, they are uh, realizing that they have not been keeping the law and they repent of it and go into a time of, of, uh, of repentance and, and, uh, and vow to do better in the future. But at this point, the leaders do not want mourning over sin to overshadow the good news uh, that is being taught in the Bible. The truths of God's Word are supposed to produce joy in us, not only a realization of sin. And so at this particular event, the focus is on the joy. Repentance from sin is appropriate, but so is joy and celebration. And, and notice for a moment that both of those reactions, weeping and joy, are emotional reactions to the message of the Bible, right? So sometimes we think, no, no, when you read the Bible, you're studying and it's an intellectual activity and you're just uh, comprehending facts and, and truths and things and it shouldn't be emotional. But that's not the way the Bible presents itself. Um, both the mourning and weeping and also the joy are emotional reactions that God wants to see from us as we, uh, as we read His Word. Certainly, our minds should be fully engaged, but we cannot separate our minds from our emotions. And it is good and right that we respond to God's Word in emotional ways. And at this particular event, the proper emotional response was one of joy. Later on, there's a time for weeping, but now is a time for feasting and celebrating, and celebrating the goodness of God. And so, verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So our worship of God must include celebration. He is good to us. He gives us many good gifts, and He forgives our sins. And so we enjoy good food and drink. And a great way to celebrate the joy of the Lord is to share what God has given us with those who, who do not have enough. So generosity should always be a hallmark of our rejoicing and our worship. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The message of the Bible is a message of joy. God loves us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to bless us, and eternal life can be ours. And this is the message of the Bible, and it is good news. And the more we understand, like these people did, all that the Bible teaches, the greater our joy should be. Now, verse 13, the next day, it says, On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. 
So the next day, most of the people are home, uh, still uh, recovering from the big celebration the night before, but the leadership, the heads of the families, and the priests and Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah all get together for a further study of the Bible. And I want to make a little point about um, the Bible at, at this point. See, we are not in the place that uh, the people were in those days, where a scroll of God's Word was this rare thing that you could hardly ever see, and nobody really owned a scroll. That was like, no, we have Bibles all over the place, right? Uh, and uh, if, you don't, if you don't want to have a paper Bible, you got it on your phone for free. Um, so we have access to the Bible constantly. However, if you have access to a Bible and all it does is sit on the shelf doing nothing, you might as well have a blank Bible, like my little blank coloring book that doesn't have anything in it. Right? Oh, yeah, nothing, nothing in there, just blank pages. But if you read your Bible... You take it home, and especially with your, if you have it on your phone, you can get these little reading plans that will remind you every day of what to read. And anyway, spend some time reading the Word of God on a regular basis and come to church and hear a sermon about it. You'll start to see that actually there's more in there than just blank, right? You'll have actual pictures in your Bible. But there is a third step beyond that, which is what these guys were doing on the second day. They came together to study the Bible. Studying the Bible is different than reading the Bible, because when you study the Bible, you're spending more time just focusing on smaller sections and thinking about exactly what it means and asking questions of the text, and there's lots of different ways you can study. Studying in groups is really good, like what these guys are doing here, so get in a small group or join Bible study fellowship or whatever it is and study the Bible. And when you study the Bible, you find that it's got even more for you to see in it there. So you get the full-color experience when you study the Bible. So I encourage you all, don't let your Bible be blank. If you don't read it, it may as well be blank. But read the Bible and go beyond that and occasionally at least study your Bible Dig into it and really get the meaning from it. We're going to be starting new small groups pretty soon. So that'll be a great opportunity for you to get involved in Bible study. So the thing that Ezra had to teach them on this particular day was about one of the big annual feasts that was uh, instructed to the people in the, the Law of Moses. He had a couple of different feasts where they were supposed to gather together once a year and celebrate uh, special um, spiritual times. And it says in verse 14, it says, They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Verse 16, So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile and built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. So this was known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
uh, which was named after these little shelters that they would make. And the point of it was to be a remembrance of the, the time period when their ancestors had lived a nomadic lifestyle when they left slavery in Egypt and they were living in the desert for those 40 years and they were nomads and they didn't have permanent homes. And so they would go from place to place living in temporary shelters. And so um, when they arrived in the promised land, God said, I want you to remember that. So once a year, I want you to basically go camping, have a camp out for a week, uh, hold the whole nation all having a big camp out. Um, and, uh, and they build these little temporary shelters and live in them to remember that uh, time when God cared for them as they were moving through as nomads. And, um, and it does say that, you know, this was the first time since uh, the days of Joshua that they'd celebrated it quite like this. That doesn't mean that nobody had ever celebrated it for all those years since Joshua, but somehow the, the traditions had kind of been lost to time. Especially, I suppose, during the exile, people had kind of, how do you celebrate these holidays? Well, we, uh, it's kind of, we get out of the habit and it's, uh, and it's different than it used to be. But now they're restoring the original instructions and they're building the booths and they're doing it all just the way that Moses instructed them to do. And it's, it's especially uh, appropriate for them to be focusing on this festival now because if you think about it, they have just returned to the promised land, and they are coming and moving into Jerusalem just like that first generation did when they came and were settling first in the promised land. So this is like a new, a new settling of the promised land. And, uh, and so they're remembering that uh, original time. And it says their joy was very great because God was blessing his people again, just as he had blessed that founding generation. And they were worshiping him again, just as God had instructed them in the law of Moses. And then verse 18 says, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So this was another very big step in, the, uh, in God's plan to rebuild the city and rebuild the people of God under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? The, the walls had been rebuilt, fine, uh, and the law now had been read and taught, and the people were restoring the old customs of worship of God uh, in, in a biblical way. See, God was fulfilling his promises that he had made through his prophets when the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. He had told them at that time, the exile will not last forever. God will bring his people back and he would bless them and there would be a spiritual revival among the people. And they would know the law of God and they would worship him again and they would do better than the generation that was sent away into exile. So the example of the people of this day is a model for us today. We too have been blessed by God. We too have reason to rejoice in His goodness. And we too must pay attention to what He has taught us in His Word and seek to live our lives according to His instructions.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these people and how you were gracious to them and restored them to their place and restored them to relationship with you. And I pray that you would continue to bless us and forgive us our sins just like you forgave them and, 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 and bring us into right relationship with you. May we find the joy in your word and in serving and living for you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.